Today we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 4 at the temptation of Jesus. And there are a couple of things that we're going to find here. Um, they're going to answer some questions to us, uh, for us. And one is why the story's even in here. Why are we even told about this? All three of the synoptic writers, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially Matthew and Luke, make a big, big deal out of this. This is a very, very pivotal event. And we find, in fact, that it's very, very crucial that, that we see that Jesus faces temptation at the very beginning and at the very end of His ministry, public ministry on earth in His first advent. We're going to see here in, um, at the beginning of His ministry, and it's going to set the stage for another temptation on the night that he's arrested. Uh, and we'll see how the writers tie that together and, and what the point is. And the other thing that we're going to see is just what the nature of these temptations are. I'll confess that for a long time, it wasn't really entirely clear to me what was wrong with some of these temptations, and Jesus' response wasn't very clear to me either. But I think as we look through the passage, and specifically when we look at the verses that Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, when we go back and look at the passages that he's referring to, I think it's going to become a whole lot more clear what's going on and what the point is. So in preparation for looking at God's Word, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this is indeed your Word. And we are your people. And Lord, you have uh, promised through your Son, Jesus said, that when he went back to be at your right hand, that he would send another helper. And we ask, Lord, that that helper, the Holy Spirit, would indeed direct us to help us recognize um, clearly what it is you're communicating to us. But most importantly, Lord, that it would empower us to respond in a godly way. And Lord, we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. As we look at this passage, um, I'm going to read it in sections, and I'm actually going to start in chapter 3, verse 16. In fact, if you happen to have some whiteout in your pocket, you might just want to white out that chapter 4 break between chapter 3 and chapter 4 because they go together. I'm going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist, which puzzled John the Baptist, and, um, but he did it. And verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then... Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. There are several things that we're going to need to notice about this that are going to be really crucially important to understanding the point of this passage as we go on. Let's just look at some of them. Uh, one is that in verse 16, the Spirit of God came upon Jesus. That in some way, the, second, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, came to Jesus in some way. That's going to be important. Also, notice that a voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, obvious question. What does God think about Jesus at this point? What does He say? He's pleased with him. That's going to be important. So Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. There are several things that we've got to grasp here or we're going to completely miss the point of the passage. And that is, Jesus is ending up in the wilderness and he's hungry. The point is, he's in a tough spot, and he's suffering. Why? 
Why is he there? What does it say in the text? Somebody sing out. The Spirit led him. God the Father put him in that situation. Did God put him in that situation because he was mad at him? What has he already said? I am pleased with my son. And yet God put him in a difficult and painful situation. What on earth is going on? And I would like to point out one other thing that we can slide right by. It says Jesus became hungry. Does that strike you as odd? Who is Jesus? He is... He is the Christ. He is the God-man. He's God. Does God get hungry? And here you see, God got hungry. How could that be? That's Reading that is like if you go out in your backyard after church this afternoon and you see a fish up on a tree branch singing. And you think, that's not normally what fish do. God doesn't get hungry. How is it that Jesus could get hungry? He is, in fact, fully man. Yes, He's God, but He's also man. And it is possible for Him to be hungry and suffer. This is crucially important because what we're going to find is that Jesus is the God-man. What we're going to find as we read through here is that He is, in fact, able to suffer the way we are. Remember that... um, Paul talks about in his letter to the Philippians that when God the Son became man, became Jesus, that he set aside certain prerogatives he had as God, certain powers. He was still fully God, but he set aside certain things. We see examples of that when the disciples asked Jesus when he was going to return the second time. And what did Jesus say? I don't know. How could an omnipotent God not know? Because Jesus had set that aside to become a man and did not exercise those things. That's going to be important because later we're going to see that the writers are going to tell us that our Savior can identify with us in suffering. And I've actually had people tell me that uh, referring to passages about Jesus having been tempted like we are, they say, well, he couldn't have been because he's God. So I don't know what that means, but it can't mean that. Well, I'll let you argue with the theologians about exactly how the God-man, how the incarnation happens. God doesn't draw us a neat little schematic with boxes. He just says it is. And so I'm going to believe that Jesus can suffer. And so he's in a tight spot and he's suffering, even though God is pleased with him and God is the one who put him in that situation. And so now he's in a difficult spot and he's going to be tempted three times. And what we're going to see is each time he resists that temptation. Now, it's good. I used to get puzzled by what these temptations were really about. But where we're going to find the answer to this and understand it is when we look back at the passages that Jesus refers to when he responds to Satan. Each time Jesus responds with a, a verse from the Old Testament. They're all from Deuteronomy. If we look back at those passages that Jesus refers to, all of a sudden a light's going to come on on what's going on. So let's look at the first temptation. And what we're going to see... Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to go... There's another point I want to make about the setting. The setting here. Uh, He's in the wilderness for 40 days and became hungry. Does that sound familiar? 40-something in the wilderness and being hungry. We just read that in Deuteronomy chapter 8, didn't we? Uh, When God led Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, and we just read in um, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that the Lord led Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, and he humbled them and caused them to be hungry. They were there because God put them there, and they were hungry because God let them be hungry, and he explains why he did that. So 
the writers clearly want us to make a comparison between what happened to Israel in the wilderness when they faced hardship and what happened with Jesus when he was tempted. That's And as we see, all of the verses that Jesus quotes when he responds to Satan comes from that time concerning Israel. Um, Luke is going to go a little bit further. Not only are we going to compare Jesus and how he responded to temptation with Israel, but Luke also has us compare Jesus' response to temptation with Adam. Um, You may have noticed sometime in your reading the odd fact that Matthew puts the genealogy of Jesus at the very beginning. And he starts from Abraham and he goes forward to Jesus. But in the book of Luke, Luke does exactly the opposite. Where does Luke put the genealogy? He puts it right here. He drops this big, long genealogy. He drops it right smack dab between Jesus' baptism and the temptation. And he gives the genealogy backwards. He starts with Jesus and he goes backwards to Adam. Why? Because now he's got Adam and Jesus. And Jesus is going to be tempted by Satan. Well, how did Adam and his better half do when they were tempted by Jesus? Luke wants us to draw this comparison. He wants us to compare the way Israel responded, the way Adam the way we respond to temptation, and the way Jesus responds. This is going to be one of the main points of the passage. So let's look at the first temptation. In the first temptation, what we're going to see is that Jesus resists the temptation when he's faced with hardship. He's going to resist the temptation to take matters in his own hands rather than wait and depend on his Father's plan and provision. That will become more apparent as we read it. Verse 4, excuse me, verse 3. The tempter came to Jesus and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is one of those things that, that I think for a long time, uh, maybe you're smarter than I am, but I couldn't quite figure out the point of that. But if we go back and look at the passage that Jesus is quoting from, that's what Tyler read just before the sermon from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you recall in Deuteronomy, what's happening is Deuteronomy, the second law, God has had Moses lead the people of Uh, lead the uh, descendants of Abraham out of Egypt. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their failure to trust God. The older generation has died away and the young people have all grown up and are adults now. And so in Deuteronomy, Moses is, um, is recounting all the things that had happened. How did they get where they are and what lessons should they have learned? And so he tells them, In verse 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. This is what Jesus referred to when Satan said, We'll just turn the stones into bread. Jesus referred back to this passage. And what is the point? As you read through uh, chapter 8, as Tyler did, Moses explains the point of what God was doing with the nation Israel. He put them in the wilderness in a difficult time, when they were suffering and could not handle it themselves, to teach them that they were dependent on Him. Why? 
Remember, as we read on, he said, I'm going to take you to a land. You are going to go to a wonderful place. Jesus, uh, God lists this long list of very pleasant, wonderful things they're going to have. It's going to be different from where they're at right now. It's going to be wonderful. But what does he warn them about? What he warns them about is when you get in there and I give you all these things, you're going to get proud and you're going to say, I did it. And you're going to forget that I'm the one who gave it to you. He's warning them about having an attitude of self-sufficiency and failure to depend on the Father for His provision. This can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. We have a lot of examples in the Bible. Classically, of course, uh, Abraham and Sarah, they'd been promised that they were going to have a child, but they were getting older and older by decades and decades and decades. They were like great-grandparent age and still didn't have a child. You know, God told us we were going to have one. And So what ultimately do they end up doing? We're going to handle this. God apparently has dropped the ball. We're going to handle this. And they created a problem that's with us today through Ishmael and Hagar. They tried to handle it themselves. But sometimes we may not necessarily go and try to handle something on our own, but we may have that attitude of self-sufficiency and a failure to recognize that what we have came from God. classic example, of course, is Hezekiah. He's written about in both... Um, uh, Second Kings and in Second Chronicles and Isaiah tells the story that Hezekiah had fabulous success, even spiritual success early in his life and his king that uh, God put over Judah. He had spectacular success. But later in life, when he had all of this success in the promised land, remember the Babylonians sent some emissaries to see this great, powerful king and all that he had. And you'll recall what happened. Hezekiah failed to acknowledge God is the one who gave me this. God was not happy and there was consequences for him and for the nation. I think one of the reasons this is hard for us to see is that when you look in that Deuteronomy 8 passage that God was warning Israel about, He wasn't describing things that just happened miraculously in the sense of, well, when you get in the promised land, you're going to continue to get man, it's going to fall out of the sky. He was describing things that they were actually going to do by their effort. They were going to have their gardens and farms and they were going to raise sheep and there was iron there. They're going to have raw materials. They could have industry. They could make things. So they were, in fact, going to be putting effort into doing things. But that was going to deceive them into thinking they were the ones who were able to do it. And God says, you've got to remember, I'm the one that gave you that power. I'm the one that gave you that ability. I'm the one that gave you the stuff. I'm the one that gave you rocks. I think sometimes it's hard for us to remember that day to day. I'm 63. I had a cousin who died before he was a year old. Died in the crib, Sids. Why did the Lord have me live this long? And I don't know if I live to be 64 or not. Why do I have that and my cousin didn't? That's in the Lord's hands. Um, I remember years ago talking to Henry Pearson. And, and you can imagine Henry Pearson saying this. You, you guys that know him, you can just hear him laughing. And he said, I regard every day as a bonus day. God God didn't owe me 63 years. I don't know why he gave those to me. And the fact that I can stand up here, uh, Pastor Keith has a brother who's never stood up. He's always been in a wheelchair. I don't know why I get to stand, but that's a gift from God. That's not something I did. But we tend to be like our kids. I've got, Carrie and I have seven grandkids. Um, one of them can't talk yet, but six of them never stop talking. And one of them, all six, one of them all, one thing all six of them can say is, I do it myself. I do it myself. I do it myself. Well, in some ways that's good. But we don't want to be telling God that. You know, sometimes we won't recognize that we have that problem until 
God challenges us and shows us that. Sometimes he has to put us in the wilderness and let us be hungry. And it hurts. But God says, I'm doing that for your good to know that you've got to depend on me. I've shared before that a time for that, uh, for me, in the wilderness was when we were in Papua New Guinea and, and my wife got sick. She had, we didn't know at first, but it ended up being appendicitis and that abscessed and then ruptured in her abdomen. And it was three weeks before we were finally able to get out of Papua New Guinea and get down to Australia. We finally got to Australia and um, Carrie could still walk, but barely. And the, the surgeon just said, that he, quite frankly, was surprised that Carrie was still alive. But as we were trying to get out of Papua New Guinea, we'd gotten as far as the capital city. And there had been a bunch of hang-ups because one of the doctors had, it was misdiagnosing it at first. And then we got down to Port Moresby, and there was a big mess-up at the office of people. They were trying to get us plane tickets down to Australia. There was a, a problem with us getting visas, medical visas, to get into Australia. And the people that had my paperwork forgot to do some stuff and it got left somewhere. And I'm sitting in a hotel room (laughs) in Port Moresby watching my wife waste away. And there was absolutely nothing I could do. There was nobody to call. I didn't even have my passport to go pound on a ticket counter somewhere or to go to them. There was nothing I could do. And I reached that point and I realized... I did not want to pray because I felt like, you know what? God hadn't been doing such a good job so far. So why would I expect him to come through now? And I did not want to pray because I didn't want to leave it up to God. I wanted to do something, but I couldn't. Well, the Lord took me to the wilderness A few weeks later, my wife obviously survived. We got to Australia. She had surgery, and here we are. Some weeks later, I was still angry. We were finally going back out to the village, and one of the pilots that would fly us back and forth to the village we worked in, there was a little grass airstrip, and we were visiting. This pilot was a good friend. His name was Mark. And I was sharing with him about all that had happened, and I was grumbling about the people that had messed up and how we never got down there and Carrie nearly died and all this. And Mark was a good brother. Mark was a good brother. He said, David, he said, it it seems like you don't really have problems trusting God with your translation program. You don't really have problems trusting Him, really even with disease and natural disaster. The roof had blown off our house in the village before that. But he said, can you trust God with stupid people? And he really hit the nail on the head because when I felt like there were people not doing their job, standing in the way of me being able to help my wife, I thought, God can't handle that. He's, he must not be doing his job here. Fortunately, our God is gracious. And he put me in the wilderness and let me be hungry for my good. And that's why he does that with you and with all of us, is to show us we are not really trusting and depending on our Father to provide for us according to his plan. We can trust him. There is going to be an end to the hunger. It may not be until we're in glory. It may be tomorrow in our case A month later, my wife was pretty much recovered. It might not have gone that way. But the Lord is teaching us to trust Him. I failed. Adam failed. Israel failed. But Jesus did not fail this temptation. Let's look at the second temptation. In the second temptation, we're going to see... That Jesus is going to resist the temptation to insist that God provide for him his way and according to his timing 
rather than waiting on and depending on the Father to provide for him. In other words, Jesus resisted the temptation to say, I'll believe and trust God if he gives me what I want when I want it. Now, it may not be very apparent. This is one of the ones that I especially didn't understand until I went and looked back at the verse that Jesus quotes. Um, Verse 5, it says, The devil took Jesus into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command the angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That sounds like a strange request, but Jesus' response used to puzzle me even more. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, I didn't really understand that until I went back and looked at what is Jesus referring to? What is this thing he's quoting from? Well, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where again, Moses is recounting to the new generation about what's happened in the past. And in Deuteronomy 6, he's actually referring to something that happened back in Exodus 17. So let's go back and look at Exodus 17. In Deuteronomy, Moses just says, don't test God the way you did in the wilderness at Meribah. That's all. So let's go back and read what happened. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, it says that all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we can drink. And Moses said to him, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they'll stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord. Here it is. Because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Here's where we begin to understand what the Scripture's meaning by testing the Lord. What they mean is they're saying, I will believe the Lord exists. I will believe the Lord loves me and cares for me if He gives me what I want when I want it. If I'm in a difficult place, if I'm in the wilderness and I'm hungry, if God will solve my problem now and remove my discomfort, then I'll believe He loves me. And if He doesn't, if He leaves me here, I'm not so sure. If you're more than five years old, I'm sure that you have either experienced this in your own life or seeing it in other people's lives. Just a couple of weeks ago, Carrie and I had some missionary friends that we knew in Papua New Guinea. Uh, They're in the States, and they came and uh, spent a couple of days with us just a couple of weeks ago. And the wife was telling us about a friend of hers in their church that not too long ago her husband was terminally ill, and she had a... She had a big meeting. She called a bunch of her church friends together and she very confidently called them together and said, we're going to have a prayer meeting and we're going to pray my husband well. And he's going to get well because God's promised where two or three are gathered. He's going to get well. And so they met and they prayed. And he died. What do you do with that? What she did was I really don't know about this God thing. And she's turned her back on God. 
Whether she was ever a believer or not, I don't know. And whether she'll return or not, I don't know. But the point is, in various ways, we can all do that. We at times can say, if God loved me, if He really cared for me, if He was really going to take care of me, then why did this happen? Why is this continuing? I think we've all faced that. When we were in Papua New Guinea, we were personally acquainted with two different families that had a teenage daughter who was gang raped while they were on the mission field. And for the girls themselves, for their families, for the community, we got to ask ourselves, is God there? Does He care? Each of us in various ways We have our wilderness and we have our hunger. And it may be different for different people and different times in your life. But there may be times when the Lord is going to put you in a situation where you're going to have to say, like Job did, at least in the beginning, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And even when it hurts, are we going to be willing to believe and trust in God's plan and provision and not turn our back on Him. Even if He doesn't provide what we want when we want it, can we still trust and rest in Him? You and I fail that all the time. Israel failed all the time. Adam failed all the time. Jesus didn't. Jesus did not fail. Well, we come to the third temptation. And the third temptation, on the surface, looks pretty straightforward, but I think sometimes we can miss how it comes up in our life. In the third temptation, we're going to see that Jesus resists the temptation to try to find some other means of getting comfort and safety and the things He desires um, He's going to resist the temptation to find some other way to get comfort rather than trust in God's plan and provision. We continue reading verse 8. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. It can be a real temptation when the Lord puts us in the wilderness and lets us be hungry, whatever that is, whether it's physical illness, financial, uh, spiritual, unfaithful spouse, Uh, wayward children, wayward parents. There can often be a temptation if we feel like God is not handling a situation right to try to find some other means of escape. If we're lonely, well, I'll just give an example here. Several years ago, many years ago, this was before Pastor Terry came and it was after the previous pastor left and before Terry came and There was a young couple that visited a couple of times here, and they met with me back in the office, and they wanted to get married. And this young couple, um, they were living together, but they weren't married. She'd been, he had been married and divorced twice, and uh, she'd been married once, and married and divorced once. And they came in, and uh, they talked about getting married here at the church. And... The young man, I say young man, he was probably older than me at the time. I was just a kid. But he looked me right in the eye and he said, I know the Bible says it's wrong for us to be living together. But I know it's good because it makes me feel so good. And then he went on and he said, and her daddy is a deacon in his church and he didn't like it, but he's finally come around and he agrees that it's all right which is what we often do when we're sinning, isn't it? <laughs> we look for, try to make alliances with people that will tell us it's all right what we're doing. Um, that's what Eve did with her husband. 
Well, he said that, and, and so I asked him, and I think the Lord just gave me this. I said, okay, you're telling me that you know that God says it's wrong to be living together, but you think it's all right because it makes you feel good. Yeah. I said, okay, scenario, we marry you two. Five years from now, it doesn't make you feel good to live with her. But God says you need to stay with her and love her anyway. What are you going to do? The woman just collapsed in tears and started sobbing. The guy looked at me like I was afraid for my safety. (laughs) Because we all knew the answer to that question. She knew the answer to the question. He knew the answer to the question. I knew the answer to the question, unless something changed. What he was saying is, I'm going to do what, I'm going to take what I think will make me happy, including relationships that God says are wrong. Because my, because I think this is going to make me happy, not God. That is the definition of idolatry isn't it? We tend to think of idolatry when we're reading the Old Testament as a carving. In, in Fanny, we use the word pokse, carving for an idol. But often, even in the Old Testament, it's used figuratively, talking about idols of the heart. What are those things that deep down inside we think, if I can just have that, I'll be happy. And I'm really not happy if God won't let me have it. That's the original sin, isn't it? That's exactly what Eve did in the garden. She looked at that thing and she said, that, that's my God. That's what will satisfy me. And she wanted that rather than God. And in fact, what she did is she forfeited everything. We see that all the time. That's what Eve did. That's what Saul did. Uh, God gave Saul uh, the kingship over the nation of Israel. And yet there were times when he feared losing that, that he disobeyed God because it was more important to him to hang on to that kingship than it was to obey the Lord. He feared losing the kingship more than he feared God. And so God said, you can't be king. I'm going to remove you. And you know the story for the rest of Saul's life. It was just nothing but turmoil. There are times he would cry, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I did terrible. But then he'd turn right around and fight and struggle to try to grab hold of his idol, the kingship, rather than submit and say, Father, your will be done. We can do those same things in our own life. Uh, In the Old Testament, these often are referred to as idols. When we get into the Gospels, Jesus usually refers to these things as treasure. We can treasure good things, the Lord, in heavenly things. But when we treasure earthly things, Jesus is saying when we value other things above everything else, Jesus says what? That's where your heart's going to be. Whatever you really think and treasure is important. That's where your thoughts and hearts and desires and plans, that's what you're gonna, where you're going to be, not with the Father. He calls us to repent of that. When we get to the epistles, Paul and James and the others usually refer to these things as sinful desires where uh, sometimes they're called desires of deceit or deceitful desires and that they lie to us. Just like Eve looking at that fruit, she thought she was going to gain by getting that. And in fact, she lost. We fail at those all the time. I forgot who, where that quote comes from about our heart or little idle factories. As we go through life thinking about things that I've got to have that. And if I don't have it, I'm going to be angry at God. And I'm willing to sin to get it. Those are idols. And we fail all the time. But the point the Gospels writers are making is Jesus didn't fail. Israel failed. Adam failed. We failed. Jesus did not fail. 
Well, what's the result? Look at the end, verse 11. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. The devil left him. By the way, I'll mention here, Luke slips a little note in here. The devil departed from him until an opportune time. There's going to be another temptation that's much bigger than this one. It's going to come later. But Satan left him, and look what did happen. Angels came and began to minister him. Who sends angels? God did. God God the Father is the one who put Jesus in the wilderness and let him be hungry and suffer. But Jesus knew if he waited on his Father, his Father would minister and care for him. And he did. And I was thinking about this. You consider what what Satan offered to Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world. What is is Jesus eventually going to end up with? (laughs) For real. Jesus knows that his father is going to give him infinitely more than Satan ever offered him. But Jesus knows he needs to wait for his father's time. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is offered, is promising to give you infinitely more than what you feel like you're short of now. Are you in a difficult relationship and feel like you don't have anyone to love you? Well, there is a time that's coming when God is going to, where you will experience firsthand face to face with God and with our Savior more love and comfort than you can ever have in this life, from other people, especially from illicit relationships or from drugs or from being a success at business, whatever it is you're chasing after to make you feel good, God's promised to give you infinitely more if you just trust Him. Just trust Him. I think how often in the Scriptures where... um, it draws a parallel between us and the Father as us as parents and little children. And how often do we say to little five-year-olds, just hold your horses. I'm going to give you even more than you're asking, but just calm down and hold your horses. Just wait. And the Lord's asked us to do that for our good. So, what are our main lessons here? Well, the main lessons that I think Peter wants us to know here, uh, excuse me, that uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke, is that Jesus is the obedient son who is qualified to be the Messiah and perfect sacrifice for our salvation because he trusts, depends on, and obeys the Father in all ways, in all the ways that Israel and we have failed to do. That's the point. Uh, that the writer of Hebrews is making. There's a little verse that we put at the top of your bulletin. There's a whole section in Hebrews where the writer explains why Jesus surpasses any of the earthly priests in the Levitical line for Israel. God had appointed them as priests in all the temple worship. That was good. God intended that to teach them, but it, to teach the people, but it doesn't actually provide forgiveness. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, that is Jesus, who's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, the Levitical priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because this Jesus did once for all when he offered up himself what's he saying the earthly priests well they were sinners just like us so they had to offer sacrifices to cover their own sin first and then they would offer sacrifice what would they sacrifice something else animals they would sacrifice animals they do this over and over and over but the writer reminds us what about jesus as a priest did he need to offer sacrifices for his own sin no he didn't have any And what did he offer as a sacrifice? Himself. 
He didn't have to get at something else. He was both the priest and the sacrifice. And he was both the priest who did not need to offer sacrifice for his own sin because he didn't have any, but he was also the sinless Lamb of God without blemish. He was the only perfect sacrifice. He is the only one who could actually pay the penalty for our sins. And he did that. And that brings us to the other temptation that Jesus faced at the end of his earthly ministry. And turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 4 was preparation for what was going to come. Chapter 26. They just had the Last Supper, had communion, and instituted the Last Supper. And in Matthew 26, beginning in line 36, it says that Jesus came with them, that is the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So, you men couldn't watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Temptation to what? The temptation to flee from God's will. The temptation to run away from being obedient to the Father when it's hard when it involves suffering. He went away again a second time and prayed. In Luke, it adds here that at this point, God actually sent an angel to strengthen Jesus. But it's interesting, when God the Father sent an angel to strengthen Jesus, the pain didn't stop. It got worse. And he wasn't delivered from what was coming. What he was strengthened in was the strength to endure and obey in the face of hardship. In fact, it was after the angel came to strengthen Jesus that he began sweating blood. He went away again and prayed a second time, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found the disciples sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away. He prayed... He prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to him, Are you sleeping and resting? Look, the hour's at hand. The, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. Look, they're coming. A crowd comes. They've got clubs. They've got swords. A fight ensues. A guy gets his ear cut off. There's blood. There's fighting. Jesus says, Stop! This is God's will. This is my Father's will. Put the sword away. Then all the disciples fled and left him alone. People failed him again. How many times have we fled from the Lord when it gets hard? Jesus didn't. Jesus did not flee. And that's why He is the perfect sacrifice for us. That's why He is able to be the Lamb of God who took the punishment for our sins that He didn't deserve. There is a sense in which Jesus is an example for us to follow. We talked about the fact that Jesus got hungry. 
Jesus had set aside a lot of his uh, prerogatives as deity to become a man. And how did he live his life? It goes back to the Holy Spirit coming on him. The way Jesus was able to be sinless, Jesus the man, was he depended on his Father. He trusted his Father's plan. He trusted in his Father's provision. And he trusted in the empowering of the Holy Spirit so that Jesus as a man was able to obey without sin his Father. Because that was his Father's plan for him to endure that for us. That's the point of this passage, is for us to appreciate who our Savior is and what He has done for us. If you're visiting here this morning and you've never trusted in this or never really heard, what is this Christianity thing about? about? I actually had one of my relatives ask me one time, you Christians talk about saved. Saved from what? Well, God has said that as Creator of the world, that He demands sinless perfection. But all of us have failed and sinned and rebelled against Him. And the penalty of that is death. But God the Father is also a loving Father. And He's provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sin. And that way is God the Son came and became a man. And as we've seen, He was sinless and lived a perfect life. And He gave Himself as a sacrifice to take the punishment for our sins. And on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead, and he's sitting in his right hand. And God has told us that if we will admit to him, confess to him who he is and who and what we are as sinners, and we will accept that sacrifice that his Son has made for us, that he will forgive us of our sins. He'll cleanse us of that and give us an eternity with him when we will have all of those things that you may be desiring now and can't get, but the comfort, the love, and the fellowship with the Father will be ours. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your grace. Lord, we praise you with fear that you're a righteous judge, and we also praise you with thanksgiving that you are a merciful Merciful God, who has provided a way that we can have forgiveness and be restored with you. It's a road that came at great price to yourself in that you gave up your own son to death and punishment. And your son accepted that task. He did not shrink away. He did not shrink away because of fear of the pain. But he endured it because it was your desire for him to do so and because of his love for us. So, Lord, we thank you for that and praise you and uh, lift up your name. And we pray in your son's name. Amen.